If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2. We're going to be reading 2, Isaiah 2, 3, and 4 today. Isaiah 2, 3, and 4. Now, you can recall from last week that the Lord here was giving uh, here in the first five chapters an overview of the whole book of Isaiah. An overview, really, of the whole view of redemptive history. We said it's kind of like the back of the book, the summary of the book. His plans to redeem a sinful people and restore them. We also saw that he does this in visions, which he puts his plans, uh, he puts his plans and thoughts in, in visual form. Now, John Calvin says of the visions, especially here in Isaiah, but elsewhere in Scripture, in scripture that God does these for us in these chapters to give pure doctrine even more weight to our hearts so that we can not only know these doctrines, but we can know them. We can feel them in our hearts. And so he shepherds us in a more understanding way to seal these doctrines, showing us that he is Lord of Lords and he is the King of Kings and that his kingdom is over all and will endure forever. His kingship is over all. It will endure forever, but that it is for Zion, his dear people. Our text is chapters two, three, and four today. And you're going to notice that this section begins and ends with a lovely poem about Zion's glory Two, the beginning of two, a lovely poem about Zion's glory. And then it's going to end end of four with a lovely poem about Zion's future glory. The things that God has intended for her in which he has said and promised that he will certainly work in her. But in the middle is a really horrible, ugly picture <laughs> of what Zion really looked like. So our first point is this, and we're going to find this in, in chapter 2, 1 to 5. Hopefully you can see that this summarizes those first five verses. God designed Zion as a fountain of his word to gather the nations. God designs, designed Zion as a fountain of his word to gather the nations. Let's see this in the first five verses. The word that Isaiah, Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that, that, we may, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between the nations and he shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Thus far God's word. The highest mountain with an upstream flow of people. Did you notice that? So the purpose and design for, design for Zion, God's people, was always that she would be the highest of the mountains in the world. But if you look at the height of Mount Zion, where the temple and the capital city of Israel, when Judah, uh, when Judah was then, it, was not, it is not a very high mountain. It's pretty puny in comparison to the mountains of the rest of the world. Now, it's not Spring Hill, and it's not Bird's Hill, but it's not Lake Louise or Everest either. And that's the point. That Zion's greatness, which the Lord will give her, has nothing to do with anything natural about her. God's people were nothing when he chose them. When he set his affection and love on them and he loaded them with lots of wonderful, glorious promises. But it was God's design for Zion to be the highest 
of all mountains. Now you can think here of John Calvin's words about the value of God speaking in visions and images. Why would God say that Zion would be the highest of of all mountains to attract mountain climbers? No. So that there would be a downstream flow of God's word that would explain the upstream (laughs) flow of people. Now, in the spring of the year, if there's no traffic, there's no wind, what would you hear as you, as you approached a high mountain? You would hear the flowing of mountain streams. And which way would the water flow? It's going to flow up the mountain or is it going to flow down the mountain? It's going to flow down, down, down the mountain. And what was it that was supposed to be flowing from the mountain of God? Did you notice that? What's supposed to be flowing from the mountain? Down. Oh, it's his word. Did you notice that? His commands and his covenant promises flowing down his gospel. Now, what would stop flowing water? What stops flowing water? Land that's higher than it. Right? Water stops when it hits land that is higher than that. If there's a flood, you want to build a big dike. You want higher ground, and that stops the flow of mountain, uh, of mountain water. And that's why the Lord's call and promise was for Zion to be the highest mountain. Because the word of God, the law, and the gospel of God was to flow everywhere in the world from Zion. And if there was a mountain higher than Zion... The water, the word of God, the law and gospel of God would not flow to those lands, to those peoples. Now, what's the result? What's the result of the word of God flowing to all nations? It brings a reverse flow of water back to Zion, doesn't it? Did you notice that? And is this a flow of water? No. It's a flow of people. People flowing uphill. And you might say, Derek, things don't flow uphill let alone up a mountain. And you're right. Isaiah is clearly pointing to a supernatural flow, a miraculous flow, something that's not possible unless the Lord draws people to Zion, to his temple, to himself. And these people will join Zion and they will make it larger. Zion, her people, her citizens, her kings, and her temple, they were to function with God's blessing. They were to function as a light to the nations, as a downstream flow of God's word and promises to the nations, a people who delighted in God's law and showed others how lovely God's law is, a people who trusted it and proved God's promises and called all the other nations to come and do the same, a downward flow of the law. And promises of God. And God shares a different vision with a very similar point in the book of Ezekiel. Go to Ezekiel 47. Different vision, but similar point. Water flowing from the temple and then gathering people of all nations who don't just come to visit Zion. They're coming to join her. They become part of her. They become Zion. They become Jerusalem. They become Israel along with those in Israel who love God's law and trusted in the gospel of forgiveness of sins. See this in the first two verses of Ezekiel 47. You see the same thing. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end to the threshold of the temple south of the altar. Then he brought me out by day of the north gate and by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out from the south out on the south side. And the rest of the chapter continues to describe the flow of the water and how it makes Zion's, it makes Israel's borders much larger than they were originally promised to be. And the vision ends with these words. Look at verse 21 to 23. This is fantastic. Ezekiel 47, 21 to 23. So you shall divide this land among you according to the tribes of Israel. 
You shall allot to it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the sojourners who reside among you and have had children among you. They shall be to you as native born children of Israel. With you, they shall be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. In whatever tribe the sojourner resides, there you shall assign him his inheritance, declares the Lord God. God promises to enlarge Zion by the flow of the glory of God, his word, his laws, his promises to the nations who come and join Zion by being added supernaturally drawn supernaturally by the word of God coming from Zion. And did you notice what the result was to be? Did you notice that? So they've come in, they're joining enemies, enemy peoples becoming not only friends, but also co-laborers. The weapons that were used against each other are not now to be melted into trinkets, but they're melted and formed into tools Co-laborers now producing fruit and crops together. As you're going to see, as we go through the visions of Isaiah, there will be an element of in this life and then an element of in the life to come. So focusing on the in this life portion, you're going to see that the gospel and law of God going out from God's people if it were received by the nations would make friends of those nations, of those peoples. This is true in Israel's history. We saw this most mostly in the reigns of King David and Solomon. You notice that, right? The, the law of God, the promises flowed out and, and where it made friends of some nations, but it, it also is true of converts from other nations. We see this now of men and women who are from different ethnicities which are traditionally enemies who are used to hating each other and expected and instructed to hate each other by the world. Now see each other as co-laborers in the gospel, in the church, in the heavenly Zion, in the true Zion, in God's Zion. Remember that Paul said in Galatians four, that Christians belong to the Jerusalem above the Zion above. And those people who used to be enemies are now brothers and sisters in Christ drawn by the gospel of God to each other and to God. And so dear church, we must repent of seeing our brothers and sisters in Christ as opponents, as strangers, as enemies, even though that urge will well up within our hearts in the world and the world will demand it of us that we see each other as enemies and opponents and strangers, the world will expect it of us to harbor animosity over cultural or racial or political views. And that is contrary to the commands and sweet promises of God. We are co-laborers in the gospel, co-heirs in the household of God, in the temple of Zion and of God himself. There's also in the life to come embedded in this passage. Promised here is also a day after God's judgment has finally come on the earth when no unsaved people remain. When only the people who live in God's Zion, uh, who his redeemed people of all ethnicities, and, and there will be no more suffering. There will be no pain. There will be no hardships, no death, no sickness, no more war. This is promised by the Lord and it is impossible for God to lie. So dear church this week, those words that longing us for an end of war rises up. But as that longing for an end to war, as it rises up, let's make sure that also that what also rises up is a confidence that God will establish a world without any war. When he comes to renew the earth and when all the people and only the people who live on it are the redeemed who have been united to Christ and to each other. A place of perfect peace. Let's look at our second point here. As we move on, we've moved on 
unfortunately, from that beautiful poem. And now we're going to get to that ugly sandwich in the middle. And our second point is this. Zion longed to be like the nations, trusting in the works of their hands. Let's see this in 6 to 22. Hopefully you can see that this is a good summary of 6 to 22. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols, and they bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Don't forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of man shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low against the cedars of Lebanon lofty and lifted up and against the oaks of Bashan against all the lofty mountains and against all the uplifted hills against every high tower and against every fortified wall against the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of man shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day and the idols shall utterly pass away. And the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Thus far God's word. So I wonder if you saw that Israel, or Zion, was supposed to be a high mountain with light and water flowing toward the nations, but in reality, they had reversed that order. Did you notice that? They were filled with things from the east. Did you see that right at the beginning? They're filled with things from the east. They became a low mountain where the commands and promises of the nations and religions flowed to Zion instead. It was backwards. They longed to be like the nations rather than to have the nations have the same commands and promises and loving affection and discipline as God graciously gave to them. Instead of wanting the nations to be added to the sheepfold, of the Lord, the good shepherd. They long to be the sheep of the nation's gods. The flow of religious water flowed toward Zion, not away as it was supposed to. And because of that, the flow of people flowed away from Zion, not toward as was intended by God toward the gods of the nations and away from the God of Israel and the religion of all nations. We've said this before and it bears repeating over and over again. The religion of the nations can be summarized by confidence in the work of your hands. What you have done, what you have accomplished, what you have accumulated, what you have not done. Confidence in the work of their own hands rather than confident in the work of God. The work of God's hands. The nations made their own gods. Israel was forbidden from even making a statue of their God. All the things that the nations rested their confidence in for entrance into heaven. For confidence in the future. Or even the ability to sleep in peace. Was not in the Lord God. But in their own actions and abilities. They were trusting in men and not God. What helps you to sleep when you are anxious? What can calm your fears when you're worried about the future? How can you gain confidence in the future? When you're worried about your standing and your holiness before God, how do you gain confidence? Your friends, that is your God. That is your hope, your religious boast. And for the Lord's people, They were always to have that hope in his hands, 
in his accomplishments, in his ability to save sinners, not them save themselves, in his ability to control the future, not their ability to control it. Verse 22, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For what account is he? He is the wind. You're trusting in somebody who for a period of a few decades has air in his lungs. What foolishness. Now God's purification will be by destroying those idols and those who trust in those idols. God promises to purify Zion by destroying the idols and everybody who refuses to repent of trusting those idols. That's God's way. He puts idols to shame. He shows how worthless they are so that those who trust in them will toss them away as useless. Did you see that as the people are running from the the terror of the Lord? They've got their idols and they're running and they're trying to get into a cave, but the cave is too small for them to fit in with their idols. And so they like toss their, their idols away to the moles and the bats. And so they can climb in. They see them as worthless. And this is God's MO. This is what he does. He uses his power over history and over your life to put anything that you're trusting into shame so that you will let go of it and you will run to the, to the one who will never be put to shame and who will carry you in this life. For those who belong to him, for those whose names he has written in the book of life, that is a mercy that he does for us. He exposes our idols by showing how weak they are to purify us For those trusting in the future based on the peace of the Western world, that has been removed. For those of us trusting in the future based on the stability of the dollar, that has been removed. For those of us trusting in the advances of modern medicine, for those of us trusting in our own holiness, he will often show us how weak and sinful we are so that Not that we will be hopeless, but that we will trust in Christ's righteousness alone. God did this for Israel in exile. That is the purpose of the exile, to destroy her idols and those who trusted in those idols when he sent them to Babylon and to Syria. A crushing judgment on her holiness and on her strength and on the strength of false idols that she worshiped from the nations. And that was God's merciful hand on those of Israel whose names were written in the book of life. It purified them and the life to come. But there will be a day when there is a final judgment that comes on all people and all people will see and know the uselessness of whatever they have trusted in and they will be destroyed in hell along with the men and the money and good deeds that they trusted in. They thought they were going to be standing before God in rich robes of righteousness. And and instead, they will be shown to be standing in filthy, bloody rags. With the exception of the remnant that God saves. Those whose confidence is not in the work of their hands, but in the hands of the Lord God whose boast was not in themselves, but in the salvation that God would provide as a grace. And those people will not be put to shame because their confidence is the Lord and he will never be put to shame. Our next point, you can see hopefully with me in the first 15 verses of chapter three. So God is judging their idols. Now he's going to judge their lords. God will judge their lords. Let's see Isaiah three, one to 15. For behold, the Lord, of, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judea support and supply, all support of bread, all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician, magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another and everyone his fellow and everyone, to his, and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the, the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father saying, you have a cloak. You shall be our leader. 
And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day, he will speak out saying, I will not be a healer. In my house, there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make for me a leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. For they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them. For they will eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him. For what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infant are their oppressors and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend and he stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor? Declares the Lord God of hosts. Thus far God's word. Now, because Isaiah and God through Isaiah, one of his favorite word pictures of Israel's relationship to God is marriage. The Lord, the husband, Israel, the wife, and his favorite, therefore word picture of idolatry is adultery or prostitution. You're going to expect to see that in, as God looks at Israel, as he looks at Zion and he sees idolatry in them, he's going to see these things where you have an ungodly view of marriage ungodly view of what a good man is and what a good woman is, what a good Lord is, what a good master is, what a good King. You're going to have this all mixed up. And so this section and the next can be divided by a focus on men and a focus on women. And so rather than being a light to the nations, a high mountain, they have been downstream of the nation's view of lordship and ruling and also of masculinity. And one of the things that defined their view of masculinity and of lordship and of authority and power was self-protection. The lords of Israel, of Zion, used their power and authority to protect themselves. They used their power for their own benefit rather than the ones whom they were appointed to protect, which would have been the poor and the widows and the orphans. This is like machismo. Their leaders and men were seen, were supposed to be seen as servants of the people. Exercising authority, yes. Using power, yes. Using strength, yes. But not for their own benefit. For the benefit of those under their authority. And so God purifies them by giving them leadership which suits their foolish desires. God judges their worldly Think right downstream from the world, their worldly view of leadership and masculinity by making a fool of it. Their leaders are going to be, their their leaders are like children, right? Selfish, bratty children. And that really is the logical end of a worldly view of leadership and masculinity. Basically toddlers with muscles. So God takes away their muscles. I have a bigger coat than everybody. You have no coat. I have more bread than everybody. You have no bread. He takes away their muscles and you won't even have people left to lead you, says God. Nobody's even going to want it. And that is how God purifies his people by putting to shame those ungodly desires and boasts that those people trust in. And that's God's plan for Zion in history, how he will redeem and gather and shape and purify and hold his people. The next passage corresponds to it. You can see it is its complement. And we can see that in three verse 16, all the way to the first verse of chapter four. And we're going to say that this is going to be summarized by saying God will judge their beauty. That's our fourth point. God will judge their beauty. So let's read three verse 16, all the way to four one. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet before the Lord. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. 
In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty, she shall sit on the ground. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Thus far God's word. And so you see here an ungodly view of femininity and marriage. If Israel is the bride of Yahweh, you could see that the nations gave her the understanding of what is a true woman and what does it mean to relate to a husband. So you can expect the worldly view of lordship and leadership to have then to produce a worldly view of femininity. So what does the world see as the ideal woman? Well, godliness is not seen as beautiful. In this vision, the daughters of Zion are walking around arrogantly. You can see that proudly and provocatively. They're looking for attention based on a worldly view of beauty. The issue here is not that women aren't supposed to be beautiful. Women are the beautiful gender. Let's just settle that. But these women are flaunting their sexuality as if they are prostitutes. They are wanting their sexuality to be noticed. They want to be known for their physical beauty rather than their internal beauty. They have embraced the world's view rather than God's design of what is the ideal woman. And you might say, and you can see how this connects with their idolatry true too. It is they're after non-covenantal sexual attention. They're after non-covenantal sexual attention. Now, sexual attention is good for women to seek in their marriages. To the man to whom they are joined with in a covenant. A permanent loving relationship of love and faithfulness and protection and provision and care for the children which come from their union. To seek and appreciate intimate attention and to want her physical design to be noticed by the man who has already been gladly bound to her in a permanent covenant. That's good. That's God's design to beautify that kind of relationship, to make that kind of righteousness and faithful relationship, a more beautiful and enjoyable relationship. But their love of the gods of the nations has come with a love of the way those gods saw the value of femininity. And so God purifies by removing what they thought was their beauty. God judges and purifies them by removing what they thought was their beauty. Hair is replaced with baldness. Belts replaced with ropes. There's, there's no men left to try to seduce or even notice your beauty. Several women agreeing to share the same man, not even wanting him to care for them. Not even to act like a man. No protection, no love, no provision. And God, for the sake of his true Zion, will purify them by putting to shame the water that flowed into Zion and all who drank that water. And the poem that comes next is the result of God's purifying work. And that is utter glory and beauty for Zion. Let's read. Let's summarize this by the Lord redeems his beautiful bride by the fires of judgment. Isaiah four, two to six. We can end on a good note. (laughs) In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. 
When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and fire of a flaming, uh, shining of a faint flaming fire by night. And over all the glory there shall be a canopy. I'll tell you what that means in a bit. And there will be a booth for shade by night from the heat. And, a, and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Thus far God's word. Here we are introduced to a very important character in the book of Isaiah. I wonder if you noticed the branch. See him? The branch. The branch is the Messiah. He is also called the branch of David. In Isaiah and other books of the Bible, he is the Messiah and his lineage is from David's throne and David's line. He's called the branch of David. But here, did you notice he's not called the branch of David? What's he called? Branch of the Lord. The Lord's branch, the Messiah, who is not only the son of David, but also the son of God. The one who's going to come 700 years after Isaiah's prophecies. And he will bring glory and beauty to the survivors, the remnant, which God keeps through that judgment. He, the Lord Jesus, the branch of God, the branch of David, he is the word of God. John 1, the word became flesh. His life was the embodiment of God's law. He loved and did exactly what God loves and commands. And his life and death are the gospel. His life and death are the gospel. He is the salvation of sinners. If you trust in him, his life counts as your record. If you trust in him, his death paid for your sins. He is the gospel. His resurrection counts for your resurrection from the dead. He is the word of God. He is the law of God. He is the gospel of God. He is the fulfillment of all of Zion's promises. Now, when and how will the Messiah reverse the flow of water? What needs to happen for that mountain to now have water flow away from it rather than toward it? What needs to happen? It needs to be lifted up. It needs to be lifted up. So that water goes out from Zion and, and goes to all nations and the nations flow into it. And wouldn't you know that's what happens with Jesus. John chapter 12, 31 to 33. This is after the triumphal entry and all of, all of Zion's coming to Jesus. They're proclaiming him as the Messiah. And not only that, to the Pharisees' chagrin, you've got Greeks coming. And they say the whole world's coming to him. <laughs> Jesus then says, John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Boom. Well, that must be when he's lifted up in praise. No, read 33. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. How would Zion become the highest of all mountains where the word of God flowed to all corners of the world like water and then drew people of the nations to join Zion by him being lifted up on the cross and bearing the punishment from God for all of their sins, then dying and being buried and being raised from the dead on the third day. When that gospel goes out from Zion, To all the nations, it will draw all men to him, to God, to Zion. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand that word draw. The word draw, as in drawing people, is not the same as the women attracting the men's attention in chapter 3. It is the word draw, as in drawing water from a well. He's going to collect them. He'll go and get us with the gospel. He won't try to. He will. And so dear brothers and sisters, if you have heard the gospel, if that water has flown to you, the waters of Zion have flown to you, the gospel of Jesus, 
And if you have believed in that gospel, then you can rest assured that the Lord has drawn you. He has added you to Zion. Christ has fulfilled the command and promise that God gave to Zion. Now, how though does Christ cleanse his people? Did you notice it says he's going to cleanse his people. And then after the cleansing, there will be a remnant left over. How is he going to cleanse them? How is he going to purify them? Did you notice he said, by spirit of fire? You notice that? So how does Christ cleanse his people? How does he do that? Well, the first is by suffering judgment for her. The fires of hell hit Christ on the cross instead of you. If your trust is in him and he absorbed the fires of hell for you so that you will never, ever, ever face them yourself. If you are in Christ, he says, You are a new creation and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is how he purifies them by taking their sin and then being hit by the fires of hell for their sin. And so you are legally pure, righteous, cleansed in God's sight. But he also does it in a second way. And that is by his Holy Spirit working in us. The word Holy Spirit is often connected to fire in the New and Old Testament. The purification of the Spirit of God is given to all who Christ died for. And God using his Spirit to to, to respond to the word of cleansing. So the word of cleansing comes at you as you're reading the word of God, as you're seeing the word of God, as you're hearing somebody else say it, as you're hearing it preached that the word of the gospel, the water of the gospel is hitting you. And now the Spirit of God works inside you to be transformed by that water to be made alive by that water, to be nourished by that living water of Christ and his gospel. But one day God will purge the entire world of sin with the waters of his judgment, with the great judgment, with the fires of his judgment. The world will be destroyed. And who will remain after that purifying judgment? Did you notice Isaiah tells us who remains after that purifying judgment? Who is that? Who is that? Verse three, and he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Who is that? Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. Huh? Everyone whose name is written in the branches book of life will remain after the judgment. The true Zion will descend from heaven, which is all those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, the branches book of life in Jerusalem. I want you to notice these beautiful passages where all these things, the the Lamb's book of life, names written in the book of life, Zion, Jerusalem, and bride of Yahweh. Let's just soak these up here. Revelation 21, 1 to 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. There you go. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse nine of 21 of revelation 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me in the spirit to a great high mountain. Oh, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a Jasper clear as crystal. Let's go to verse 22 of revelation chapter one. And I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the, is the lamb. By its, na- by its light will the nations, there you go, walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. You think? You think John was thinking of Isaiah 2, 3, and 4 when he wrote that? 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. Talking about the church gathering for worship. But you have come to Mount Zion. In the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly, that's church, ecclesia, of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven. Oh, enrolled in heaven. Names written in the Lamb's book. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the, than the blood of Abel. We'll stop there. We could go on. If your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, you are the people of the branch of David. You are the people of the branch of God. You are the glorious Mount Zion, which is the church of the firstborn, which is the bride of Jesus. Now, Isaiah is also going to sum up all this mix up with idolatry and masculinity and femininity and prostitution, all that stuff. He's going to sum it up. He's going to, he's going to, he's going to beautifully tie those things up because God is Zion's Lord and Zion is his bride. And I wonder if you can see the irony, the beautiful irony of God's condemnation of Zion for her sin. Selfish lords and vain promiscuous women who don't even require faithfulness and love and care and protection in their men. That also functions as a parable of Zion's lusting after the gods of the nations. Zion essentially said, I will serve you as a prostitute. No commitment necessary. But if I impress and attract you enough, please just say you're my God. If I give you enough pleasure, just please say you're my God. I don't need a covenant. I want it all to be workspace. No love, no tender care, no prostitution. It is the equivalent of sex without a covenant. And so it is no surprise that the nations and the people who adopt that view of spirituality also adopt that view of marriage and sexuality. But the Lord Jesus, Zion's Lord, is not like the gods or the lords of the nations. He doesn't look for his people to seduce him or to attract him or to keep him with their beauty. He's a good Lord. He is a loving husband, a true man. And I wonder if you notice that phrase in verse five, that word canopy over her will be, and over the glory will be a canopy. And that word canopy is a bridal canopy, a marriage chamber. It is a safe place of protection for newlyweds to enjoy one another's love. A place of exclusive, permanent, protective, loving, and selfless relationship. Zion is his bride, united to him in a covenant. The two have become one flesh. Now, Jesus by no means gives up his lordship. He no, by no means gives up his authority and headship. He remains Lord. But he uses his lordship to care for her and purify her and love and even to make her beautiful. This is shown in Ephesians chapter 5 in beautiful, beautiful ways. And so he laid down his life for her sins, counting her own sins as his. And he reigns over Zion and over the nations for his bride's good. And how long will this faithful husband say true to his wife? Will it be as long as she is beautiful? Will, is it, will it be as long as she makes it worth his while? Will it be as long as she pleases him? By no means. He will be a faithful husband to his church, to his elect, to the people whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life for as long as he is faithful. And that is forever. I wonder if you're a part of Zion. That glorious beautified Zion, which Isaiah saw. Is your name written in the book of life? If you haven't repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus's death and resurrection, then you can have no confidence that your name is written in the book of life. And so when the fires of hell and of Christ's judgment come on earth to purify it, you will not remain. You will not survive, but you will be cast into hell 
to eternally receive what is due for your sin. And this gives a picture of how vile your sin is and what God thinks of it. But if you have repented of your sin and you've trusted that on the cross, Jesus was damned for your sin in order for you to be reconciled to God, to forgive you and purify you, and that he rose from the dead on the third day, then you are part of the eternal Zion, the city of God. You are part of the church of the firstborn and are part of the body of Christ. You are part of the bride of Christ and you are kept safe under that canopy of his love, his covenant, permanent love. And fierce and fiery judgment is coming on the world, but you will remain because the Lord Jesus is your husband and he has already been damned in your place and risen from the dead. So church, let us therefore throw off that lust for the waters of the world and embrace being Zion where the gospel of Christ flows outward into a dark world, gathering the elect. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this passage gives a very true but damning picture of those things which we see often in our own hearts and shows us of the worthiness that we have for hell and damnation and shame. But it also shows the greatness of your promise to send the Messiah, the branch, the husband of the church, who will not give up his power and authority over her, but that he will use it for her good as if she were his own body. Lord, let us not be fools to want to be like the nations. Let us drink deeply of the fountain of your word and love it and not thirst for any other water other than the living water of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you make us a people who love to be beautiful as you see beauty, not in order to attract you, but because we love you. Lord, I pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen.